Hello and welcome to IPE Leaders and Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. I'm Liam Kennedy, Editorial Director at IPE, and together with my colleagues from the editorial team, I will be hosting regular conversations with senior figures in the institutional investor community, the people stewarding billions of long-term capital. Leaders and Investment will range across beliefs, objectives, investment philosophy, strategy and outlook, capturing diversity of thinking towards mainstream and alternative investments, both liquid and illiquid. Our conversations will dive into investment governance, strategic and tactical asset allocation, implementation, in-house teams, manager hiring and firing, sustainability, and how to deal with partners and stakeholders. Over the course of our conversations, We hope we'll be creating a valuable library of downloadable insights into what motivates both individuals, teams, boards and trustees as they set about achieving their long-term goals with a view to improving the retirement outcomes of hundreds of millions of pension holders. To access all episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, or you can find us on leading podcast platforms including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, if you like what you hear, Do tell friends and colleagues, and please let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. This episode of Leaders and Investment is sponsored by PGIM. What do you see on the horizon? At PGIM, we can help you rise to the challenges of today, drawing on deep expertise across the world's public and private markets. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today. So today I'm joined by two senior figures from the UK pension sector. Mads Gosvik is Chief Officer for Fiduciary Management and Investments at RailPen, and John Greaves is Director of Fiduciary Management, also at RailPen. John has been at RailPen for nearly 12 years, while Mads joined in 2020 from the Danish labour market pension scheme ATP, and he also worked for the UK DC Master Trust, now Pensions. RailPen is a multi-employer pension scheme, and so it's a relative rarity in the UK, as there aren't many of them. RailPen manages both open and closed DB schemes in the UK rail industry, serving around 150 employers. RailPen also employs over 700 staff on its own account, from three offices in different parts of the UK, providing administration, advisory and support services to the trustee board, as well, of course, as investments, which is our focus today. And the team oversees around £35 billion, or €40 billion. The UK rail industry has acquired something of a Byzantine structure since privatisation in 1994, and has always been the butt of a number of jokes, from the quality of the sandwiches to excuses for late-running trains. Today we want to look at uh, the investment side of matters. John, it's a complicated story. It's entwined with the rail privatisation in the 1990s. Can you give us a potted history of rail pen, which I think will help listeners to really understand how you see the world? Thanks, Liam. It's uh, great to be here today. Um, Well, I can't speak about our sandwiches, but I'll give our history a go. As you said, the railways were privatised in 1994 in the UK. Uh, As you can imagine, it's a heavily unionised industry. Um, so the impact on members present and future was really integral to the negotiations with the with regarding the pensions at the time. 
Um, all deferreds and pensioner members at the time were ring-fenced into a separate scheme and given a crown guarantee by the government. Um, we continue to manage this scheme today, but as you can imagine, some 30 years later, it's a very mature cash and negative scheme. Um, all the active members at the time were given protected status, so that meant that they could continue to accrue benefits in the railways uh, industry for as long as they were working. Uh, and some of these members, uh, many of these members, are still accruing benefits today, which I think is really testament to how long people tend to stay in, in the UK's railways industry. And, and that longevity definitely sort of impacts uh, how we approach investment and funding in the scheme. The Railways Pension Scheme is actually one large scheme that's split into uh, many different sections. Each of these sections has its own balance sheet and sponsor. And for all intents and purposes, really, they are separate pension schemes. They need separate advice and separate implementation. So we manage over 100 of these sections or, or clients, if, if you want to refer to it that way, on behalf of 350,000 members. Most of these sections, around about 80% by assets, remain open to new members. Um, however, we manage lots of sections that are close to new members. These are typically sponsored by companies that have you know, since left the railways industry, but were involved for a time, typically providing uh, ancillary services. A single trustee board sits across the entire scheme. Um, and I would say we operate with you know, a highly delegated government's model. You can imagine with that much complexity, single trustee board. So we favour oversight rather than control. And we, we can come back to that. Um, quite unique, uh, managing both open DB and closed DB. Uh, we also manage around $2 billion in DC, but that's mostly additional voluntary contributions. So I'm sure one of your listeners will tell me I'm wrong, but um, I'm yet to find a more complicated pension scheme in the world. Um, so obviously Railpen has had to evolve over time to meet the needs of this complex pension system. As you said, I've been here over 11 years, almost 12 years. Uh, Railpen is responsible for the strategic advice, implementation and investment management of the Railways Pension Scheme and three other smaller schemes. In the time I've been here, we've built out our investment management capabilities, um, many of which those portfolios we invest internally. And most recently, we built out our fiduciary capabilities as well. And that's focused on providing better advice, oversight and um, sort of strategic management of our assets. And that's that's where I sit in the business. So we, we really try and operate as one integrated pension business from administration all the way through to people, you know, picking stocks. So you mentioned the trustees and the oversight. How do you work with them in practice? And uh, how rewarding and challenging is that to work with those um, sort of very talented and experienced people? Yeah, over, you know, 100 sections, 150 sponsors, hundreds of benefit structures, many more stakeholders. So it certainly keeps us on our toes. Um, do I find it rewarding and challenging? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a fascinating scheme to be involved in. Uh, and, I, you know, I really love what I do. Um, you know, ultimately the goals and objectives for each section and the, the risk appetite for the scheme's investments comes from the trustee. Um, obviously the trustee works very closely with sponsors and other, other stakeholders. Um, every section has a clear investment and funding plan. Um, that's obviously core to the triennial valuation of the schemes and the implementation. So the strategy is then implemented in a flexible multi-asset way. And again, we can come back to that. Um, with a single trustee board, you can imagine with that much complexity, we try and think in terms of frameworks wherever possible. And I think that's a really good sort of discipline when it comes to investments. So we consider, you know, all of the things, all of the considerations you might have for setting investment strategy uh, and really work with the trustee and other sponsors, uh, stakeholders to, to balance all of those things to find the right uh, investment and funding strategy for each section. 
we do have framework. We, we have sort of defaults that come out of that framework, but every section is unique. Uh, and it's quite an iterative process working with different stakeholders. And really at the section level, we try and focus on, on risk really, um, rather than looking to finesse the asset allocation too much. And really it's, you know, how much growth risk you need to take, how much illiquidity, how much hedging, et cetera. Um, and everything from then on in our governance is, is really sort of risk-based. If I had to summarize our philosophy at the client level, I'd say, you know, we're not afraid to use the power of compounding investment returns over time, I'd say, to get pensions paid. And we try and think about medium to long term asset liability outcomes rather than just really focusing on sort of you know short term outcomes. Um, and we try and really work in tandem with the funding side. We've got a very sort of close integrated relationship with the with the scheme actuary, and that helps uh, to land the investment and funding strategy uh, in in the right place. So, with all those specifics, would it be fair to say there's one overarching set of investment beliefs which many pension funds use as a starting point? Is that the same case for you? Um, what's behind those beliefs, and and uh, how do you implement them? Yeah, we, we reviewed our beliefs a few years ago, probably about four years ago now. Really interesting exercise. Um, took about a year to complete. Uh, before embarking on this, uh, I reached out to a few sort of folks around the world about how that have done this exercise recently. Um, and we decided to um, bottom up exercise. So by that, I mean, we, we sort of started within the business rather than at the board. Um, lots of conversations, iterative back and forth, and eventually working our way up through the governance keeping an open mind, engaging, refining. Um, and I think we landed on a set of beliefs that was really sort of strong buy-in across the organization because beliefs, it's not so much about the words um, that you end up with. It's more about people feeling that they've been part of that journey to create them. They feel real ownership, real buy-in. Uh, and that worked, that, worked, that worked really well. Um, the timing was good as well. We just started to build out our fiduciary capabilities. We've been speaking to the board a lot about uh, managing assets in a, in a risk-based way. Um, so it's not a kind of coincidence that we they decided to look at the beliefs as well, because everything really stems from from there. Um, obviously, they're on our website. I won't read them out. But if I had to summarize the main bits, I would say uh, emphasizing managing asset liability risk. Um, and again, as I talked about, focusing really on the most impactful uh, things at, at client level rather than getting drawn into the detail. Uh, again, it comes back to that sort of risk based implementation. Um, having a long-term focus, uh, everyone says that, but really just trying to exploit it, I would say, kind of carefully and not not forgetting about what can go wrong in the sort of short to medium term, but generally favor, you know, looking at medium to long-term outcomes where you can. Um, implementing with flexibility, but not being sort of totally bottom-up and opportunistic. You know, finding that good balance between a sort of thoughtful investment strategy, investment philosophy, and an opportunistic investment. Um, and finally, um, actually acting upon climate risk uh, and other ESG factors as part of our fiduciary duty, not just doing it as a sort of secondary consideration or setting a really high bar uh, burden of proof that it's not detrimental to you know financial returns. Really seeing it as uh, you know our job to um, deliver the returns needed whilst positively com- contributing to the world our members retire into. And John, you've been at uh, Railpen for nearly 12 years, as was previously mentioned. What attracted you to work in the UK pension sector and uh, Railpen specifically? Yeah, I, I'm hugely passionate about pensions. I'm a bit of a sort of pensions geek. Um, you know, it's great that people, you know, are living longer, healthier lives than they were a few decades ago. But of course, you know, there's a time in everyone's life where they, re- they need to rely on, you know, the state and their financial assets to meet their spending needs in retirement rather than work. 
Um, and, you know, when you're at this stage of your life, you know, having a financial asset that provides a secure, reliable, inflation-linked income, for me, is the best way to, to sort of deal with that. Um, you can have savings, you can invest yourself, you can release money from your property. But these options require sophisticated decision-making and often expensive uh, advisory services. And I think the risk of getting that wrong is quite high. You know, it takes decades of saving, you know, a meaningful chunk of your income to save enough money to genuinely meet the spending needs most people have in retirement. And I think, unfortunately, in the UK at the moment, people are just not contributing enough. And I, I kind of worry we'll have this lost generation in the UK of people who, um, you know, just won't have enough money in retirement. So I'm really proud of what we do in railways. That's just not not the case in railways. Um, the fine benefit is, is sometimes looked at with resentment in the UK um, you know people say it's the cause of underinvestment in UK companies and these schemes are giving you know guilt edged pensions in retirement out of reach of the public but that's that's just not true pensions are, are quite simple really money in investment returns money out you know there are lots of ways to do this and it comes down to who makes a decision along the way and who takes the risk if things go wrong you know, in DB, trustee, employer make the decisions um, and the employer takes takes the risk. And, you know, I recognise that's not the right pension system for every sort of sponsor or, or every case. Um, but, you know, I'm really, you know, passionate about the role pensions can play um, in, in society. So that's really what's drawn me into the industry. And Mads, to turn to you, you've worked in the UK for a while. You've started off your career in Denmark. What attracted you to work at Railpen? Well, I was attracted to Railpen for a couple of reasons. Um, the strong sense of purpose that John also has just explained, uh, that's a key element of the Railpen culture. We're here to make a difference to the members. The retirement benefits that our members receive are absolutely crucial to their lives and retirement, and we're here to make that happen. The other reason was curiosity around the defined benefit system and how the mechanics work. Uh, as John said, the death of defined benefit pension has been proclaimed by many people. It's a bit like the bumblebee that is uh, way too heavy to, and compact to fly, but yet it flies. So it's intellectually stimulating to be in a position to think about how to make uh, it work better uh, and also uh, make it work in the future. And so how does Railpen uh, differ in its approach, perhaps you know, comparing it to the environment that you worked in at ATP and other continental European investors? Uh, it's very interesting how different systems approach the same problem, how to save for retirement. Um, a key driver of how to deliver funded pensions has been regulation. In some continental Europe countries, there has been a view that insurance-based and occupational pension schemes should be looked at the same way. The promise to deliver the full retirement benefit should be pretty firm. The corporate sponsor should play a more remote role, and solvency or capital buffer uh, approach should be the key protection for the members. For various reasons, these models have led to significant increase in fixed income investments and a decrease in growth assets like equities and infrastructure investments, as the short-term volatility of the investments compared to the expected value of the retirement benefit should be kept at a modest level. Uh, and then the expected contribution to the retirement benefits from the investment return is lowered, which then leads to either lower retirement benefits or higher requirements for contributions. The key message is that the structure of products and regulation is the key driver of how investment strategy is set. Now, in the UK defined benefit system, the reliance on the employer is kept. The retirement benefits are funded on an expectations basis or slightly better. This 
means that in the mean, the money is there to pay out the benefits. When times go by and the economic environment and financial markets change, there may be a need from time to time to add some additional funds to keep the retirement benefits funded at the expectational basis. That's what the employer is there to do, to be the buffer. And that's much more efficient than the capital buffer. And that leads to a different investment strategy where the volatility is less of an issue and more investment in growth assets with higher expected returns and hence smaller contributions to provide the retirement benefits. So one weakness of the UK defined benefit system is the reliance on the employer being able to support not just in the short term, but in the very long term, like 20 or 30 years out in the future. That's a key problem. If an employer is a public entity, there should be a good chance that the employer is around in 30 years' time. But what about the private sector employers? Now, we have been looking at how to combine the defined benefit model with employer support with a buffer approach without the deficiencies of the continental European model. The work is looking promising. We are able to support growth assets, dominated strategies, while keeping a strong risk management and the promise to deliver the full retirement benefits is pretty firm. So we do get the best of both worlds. And looking at the way that you manage uh, risk, uh, obviously the LDI crisis of 2022 was a big test of that. Um, What uh, happened there and what's happened since, I suppose, would be the question. So the approach I just talked about was mainly focused on sections that were open to new entrants. For those of our sections that are close to new entrants or new accrual, LDI is a key tool to manage the risk relating to the late in life period for the first section. The late in life period refers to the time when the proportion of the deferred and pension members starts to dominate and the net cash flow is negative as the payout ratio for total assets increase and the section becomes more sensitive to the idiosyncratic risks of its member demographics. Railpen has recently started to invest in LDI funds for sections that are late in life. We were not invested in LDI in 2022. Yet we see it as a brilliant tool, provided that it's structured the right way, to manage the end-of-life specific issues that sections may have. And John, turning to you, um, any further reflections on how you manage liquidity within that framework and how you work with the different sections? Yeah, there are two elements of liquidity that we look at. Um, The first is funding liquidity, which is simply the risk of running out of money. Uh, As you can imagine, there's not much uh, tolerance for that outcome. So really, we we, we manage that risk with sort of no no risk appetite. So we run, you know, extremely stressed, theoretically impossible simulations to make sure we've always got enough cash at different places to meet benefit payments, margin calls, drawdowns of committed capital, etc., um, as you imagine, that's very important with managing LDI assets. It's often not so much not having enough cash in aggregate. It's, it's sort of making sure the cash is in the right right place. And that was really what the gilts crisis uh, was in the UK. It, it was it was more just uh, managing you know collateral, making sure the, the cash was in the right place. So it was sort of a governance issue, operational issue rather than a solvency issue. Uh, always conscious of you know black swan events. Um, so we try and be sort of you know quite creative with, with our scenarios. Um, the second, perhaps more impactful side of liquidity management in some ways in terms of the the asset allocation is is what we call market liquidity so this is the idea of managing a book of assets uh, to make sure that the asset allocation can remain you know broadly where you want it to be you know through time and in, in, in different scenarios including some you know extreme scenarios uh, particularly if a client's needs change 
Um, so we, we published a bit of research on this recently, um, and it, it got, us, got us thinking, okay, what are the scenarios we'd find ourselves in, in terms of returns, cash flows, uh, client needs, uh, and are we comfortable with what that implies for you know, the overall level of, of liquidity, what we can do about it, uh, how the asset allocation drifts, etc. Uh, this idea of sort of portfolio steerability, so you can create lots of different metrics, test the uh, test the portfolio against different scenarios, and make sure you're you're comfortable with it. You, you know, ultimately, it, probably the most impactful thing that came out of that was you know thinking through changes to our governance, our investment process, and in some ways our sort of culture with with how we think about investing in liquid assets. You know, a lot of investors, you know, focused on, you know, origination and, and that's, that's all very exciting, but you then need to manage the asset and you need to have a plan to exit the asset in, in most cases. Um, so that was really helpful. And it just gave, gave us a bit of comfort as well. You know, for the open sections we manage, we, we got comfortable with this sort of 30 to 40% allocation to a liquid assets. Um, so that was helpful for that as well. And you run a number of pooled funds for clients um, across the different sections. And two of those are um, multi-asset um, funds, so the, the growth and the liquid growth funds. Um, why did you choose specifically to take a multi-asset approach for such an important part of the portfolio? Yeah, I think that's another differentiator between Railpen and some other, you know, multi-client organisations. What I typically see around the world is, you know, these sort of um, asset class um pot silos, these different pots of different asset classes here. We've got a, a multi-asset approach. Um, none of our uh, sections have segregated mandates. So they're all, they all own units in these uh, in these internally managed pool funds. And when I say internally managed, uh, it doesn't mean that the pool fund has to be, you know, 100% internally managed. I just mean that there's an internal manager res- responsible for that, for that pool. They can still then obviously invest in uh, external managers. Um, investing in multi-asset, you know, it's nothing new. Um, we, we do it in sort of two two places, really. At the at the client level, obviously, the multi-asset approach is, is very much, you know, a well-diversified investment strategy. And within the pool, I would say it's focused on sort of flexible, opportunistic multi-asset investing. So we try and, try and create what I call sort of areas of competition for capital. Um, so we try and group uh, investments that have similar characteristics together and get a really healthy sort of r- relative value assessment uh, through time. Uh, we find that works that works quite well. So g- just to give you one example, um, in private markets, we combine our private equity with our corporate private debt. This is the illiquid growth fund you mentioned. Because if you think about, you know, private equity, corporate private debt, you know, really these are just investments in corporate equity at different levels of the, the capital structure. So the underlying risk is corporate, the agents involved, you know, uh, GPs, etc. you know, are, are similar. Um, value creation is slightly different and the underlying corporates tend to be at different stages of maturity, maybe different level of balance sheet strength, etc. But we find it re- works really well to have this sort of relative, uh, you know, assessment through time. So as I say, it's a bit of top-down multi-asset diversification and then bottom-up um, and our governance tries to really sort of facilitate that healthy dialogue through time. So it's not full total portfolio approach. Um, and I don't know if that's really possible in a multi-client uh, setup. It'd be very challenging. So we do a sort of partial total portfolio approach, basically. And Mads, turning to you, um, looking at that multi-asset approach, what implications does it have for the kind of people that you recruit and the kind of investment organisation that you're running? And how do you sell yourself to talent as an organisation when you want to attract bright people to come and work for you? Yeah, so we are managing about two-thirds of our assets internally. Our flagship fund is the Growth Pool Fund, which includes more than half of our AUM, 
and it's predominantly internally managed. So we do have specialists in the key areas of exposure in the growth pool fund. Those areas include quantitative equities, fundamental public equities, property, quantitative alternative investment. And of course, we have portfolio construction and tactical asset allocation specialists as well. Some of the less dominant exposures are implemented by managers or partners, and we have specialists in those areas as well. We do most of our liquid investments outside property through partners. The investments include private debt, private equity, which uh, includes both buyout and innovation or venture. Uh, we do infrastructure and other cash flow generating investments. And they are increasingly more co-investments as well. So our approach is um, to have highly specialized assets uh, focused teams in place together with generalists managing the overall allocation and ensure that the sections are invested according to their, their agreed investment strategies. So this is what we call the integrated fiduciary management model. Our most important uh, EVP is our culture and our purpose. Uh, people who, that, that work for us will be able to help our members retire better. They will be part of a dynamic culture where we change our approach to continually improve what we do. And we value highly specialized people and we give them open mandates to deliver. And we have opportunities for learning and development uh, as a key priority as well. So looking at those... Uh illiquid assets, will illiquid and private market investments inevitably become more important part of the overall asset mix? And what challenges would that bring? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So there are, there are two competing answers to that. So the first is that our all exposure to liquid assets and, and private markets, it's determined by our section's needs. When sections mature and get closer to the latent life phase, their need for liquid investments will reduce for those sections. Uh, for the Railroad's pension scheme, the proportion of assets in section in this scenario is not huge. The other answer is that the strategic allocation to liquid assets for the non-mature section is more or less at the level where we see fit. So our expectations for liquid investment is for it to remain at the proportion of asset that it is today. Of course, like um, you know, a lot of investors over the last 18 months, we've been wrestling with what to do with our you know, over-allocation to private markets. You know, private market valuations have have held up um, reasonably well, and obviously the liquid you know, assets until very recently were were being marked down, particularly you know any sort of rates rates exposure. So you know, a lot of investors, um, particularly those that are more sort of mature and stable, found themselves with with high allocation of privates. And this was a really great test of our governance, I guess, because it we were having sort of really good internal conversations around how much to adjust the pacing, you know, discussing whether 2023, 2024 are going to be good vintages, whether we should use secondary markets, etc. And obviously our liquidity research was sort of going on in the background as well. So I think that's a, a great example of our integrated fiduciary investment model. We, we, we tried to find that that balance between managing risk, but not um, undermining the investment program and our market relationships, etc. Uh, ability to access deals in the future. Will you be putting more illiquid growth assets in the DC sections? Um, in terms of what we're doing in DC, um, so you can imagine it's additional voluntary contribution sitting alongside the main DB. What most of our members do is they take that as, as a sort of part of their cash lump sum essentially uh, when they retire and they take less of a lump sum through their, through their DB. Um, but we try and make sure that's invested to deliver, you know, really good long-term real returns for as long as possible in their accumulation phase. Our default strategy there is that, that those DC assets are actually invested into our, you know, internally managed uh, growth pool fund. 
Um, and that works really well because that gives them exposure to to illiquid assets. Uh, and obviously, we're we're managing the the sort of the daily liquidity pricing issues uh, anyway on the DB side. So yeah, they get about twenty percent exposure. You know, some properties, some some infrastructure, some um, some other sort of opportunistic in, investments. You know, I, we we are constantly reviewing our, our DC investment strategy, but certainly the way we're implementing today is is very aligned with say the Mansion House uh, compact. And obviously on the DB side, we're able to exploit illiquid assets uh, a little bit more because there's less need to have daily pricing and daily liquidity as there is in in DC. So. I'd like to ask a couple of questions about sustainability. So Mads, you've got a clear net zero plan, 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030, net zero by 2050. How's that going? Well, uh, it's progressing. We believe in influencing the portfolio companies as our first approach, and we are engaging across different sectors. The impact on behavior is the most important goal that we have on this. We do measurements on where we are on the quantitative metrics every three or four years. Now, the, some of the big issues in getting a good plan for, 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 for net zero is to make sure that you can actually measure and manage it. Um, we do try and work on that, and the, getting more information and data from the portfolio companies is key to getting that done. So we try to influence the different uh, areas of the different companies uh, to make sure that they can deliver some of the data that we need to make sure that we can do the right metrics. And can we look at some of the other ways that sustainability is integrated into the investment processes and the investment thinking? For example, what challenges do you see in sustainable investment and ESG, for instance, in private markets, which is an important one? And how do you look at portfolio exclusions, for instance, and transition from um, grey or brown to green? So um, sustainable investments uh, or investment is multifaceted. Uh, we have a strong integration between our sustainable ownership team and the investment management teams. Uh, in fundamental equities and in private markets, all investments are supported by sustainability opinion. We are building out the approach to the quantitative equity space as well. So we are publish, uh, publishing our key areas uh, of engagement with our portfolio companies. One of our key themes are companies' approach to fair pay, as well as their support to good mental health for their workers. Another one is the voting structures and making sure that there's only one share, one vote, essentially, uh, approach to, 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 the, to the voting structures. Now, um, we believe that, that financial and sustainability, they are complementary and integral to protecting our members' interests over the long term. Um, and we actually think that the, the approach we have is the best in class, trying to deliver uh, good financial outcomes and sustainability outcomes for the members at the same time. Now, in terms of the exclusion, so we, we do believe that we should uh, in, interact with the companies at, as a first and make sure that we have the dialogue with the companies in order to, ma to make real change in the world. But we also do use exclu exclusions from time to time. But our dominant approach is to, uh, to engage with the companies. So, Mads, another question I'd like to ask is... Um how do you deal with problems at an organizational level? So like other organizations, not everything always goes to plan. Um, how do you deal with retaining and absorbing the learnings of those experiences? Yeah, so luckily, many of our initiatives play out as hoped, or at least within expectations. And we strongly believe in diversification, so no single investment should be able to jeopardize the outcome of the whole. That said, we do learn from our experience, be it good or less good. We are building a learning culture where post-mortem analysis of good and bad is discussed 
It's not about pointing fingers. It's simply trying to see where we did well and where we could have done better. That's required to be able to perform in the future. We have multiple examples of situations where our portfolio investments did not go uh, as we planned, where most of them are being worked out. You can say there are examples from the COVID era, where COVID was a shock to, to many of our, uh, or some of our investments, um, and, and that led to uh, a need to work out in, in, in some cases. Uh, all that has been managed, and it has been absorbed, and we're on a good path on that now. So thanks very much, both of you. To wrap up, here's a big question for you. What do you see as the main questions and challenges for RailPen and for institutional investors overall? John? Right, great. It's a small question. Uh, <laughs> look, I would say the biggest challenge for the UK pension system, you know, remains under contribution. And really, a, you know, a lack of many large scale institutional players compared to, you know, other systems around the world, you know, Canada, Australia, etc. Um, but I'm confident we're moving in the right direction. Um, and obviously, I'm, you know, please say this isn't, you know, an issue in the in the, in the railways industry. I'm just conscious um, you know, as I say, we, we, there is this sort of big social risk in the UK that we need to address. Um, specifically about investing, I would say, you know, for long-term investors generally, um, other than, as I say, developing, maintaining the right pension system, I think one of the biggest risks for me is, is probably inflation. We don't have many historical examples to draw from. But, you know, the likelihood is that, you know, even if inflation rolls over in 2024, uh, as expected, uh, I think we will see many more examples of, you know, inflationary spikes in the future. You know, supply chains are more vulnerable today than they have been in the past. Policies becoming somewhat politicized again. You know, we're seeing a real lack of fiscal and monetary, you know, coordination. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, for example. Um, with a very ironically named policy. Equally, I wouldn't be surprised if we were looking at deflation again in, in 2025 as a big risk. So really far as it's about, you know, inflation being much more volatile going forward, you know, I think um, the period of, you know, very, you know, benign inflation is, is um, probably, we're not going to see that again for a little while. So, you know, managing that risk, I think will be really important uh, for long-term investors. You know, do you hedge that risk? Do you try and outrun the inflation by delivering good, good long-term, you know, nominal returns, essentially? Um, you know, and it's really difficult, particularly if you're in a sort of stagflationary environment. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's a, a challenge that many investors, uh, you know, haven't had to face for, for several decades. Mads, as we sit here in January 2024, how, how do you see these questions? Well, there, there, there are two, two things I want to, to, to mention here. First is uh, war. I think that uh, we, are, we are in a period of, of, of where there's more geopolitical risk. Uh, we see many tensions uh, play out in different places. Um, we had Ukraine a couple of years ago. Uh, we, we have the, the activities in the Middle East at the moment. Uh, that might spread. So, and I don't think necessarily that all investors in the world are prepared to have sort of a, a to, to situation where geopolitical risks play out for real. So, so that's a little bit sort of gloom and doom, I think. Um, the, the, other, the other question I think that is important is the, um, the integration of AI uh, or the development and integration of AI into what, what is happening in our portfolios and in our lives. I, I do think that this is uh, sort of a, a, a very big step towards optimization and making things much more, basically increasing productivity of, 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 um, of what a lot of people do. So I do see that AI is definitely a, a big shift and that has not been fully understood yet either. 
by most investors. Well, thanks very much. Some chunky questions to uh, end our podcast on. So, uh, Mads Gosvik, Chief Officer for Fiduciary Management Investments at Railpen, and John Greaves, Director of Fiduciary Management at Railpen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to IPE Leaders and Investment, the podcast series from IPE and IPE Real Assets. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To access all of the episodes, please visit our website, ipe.com, where you can find us on leading podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please do tell friends and colleagues, and let us know what you think by contacting us on podcasts at ipe.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. PGIM Investments, shaping tomorrow, today.